to Voice for Choice podcast, the podcast that focuses on China issues with special attention to the Central and Eastern European perspective. I'm your new host, Kara Nemečková. Joining me today will be Katja Drenhausen. We will be talking about the 20th Party Congress, Chinese elite politics, and the expected outcomes of the conclave and their policy implications. Katja Drenhausen heads the research program on Chinese politics and society at Merix, Germany. She studied sinology at the universities of Leipzig and Erlangen-Nuremberg and worked as researcher and project manager in the Beijing office of the Hans Seidel Foundation. Katja, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm so glad to be here. I like to start our podcast with uh, two introductory questions before we get to the nitty-gritty of the party politics. Uh, so my first question will be, what was your first impression of China when you arrived there? Um, I mean, for that question, it's maybe good to say when I first arrived in China, actually, which was in the, or in mainland China, which was in the early 1990s, um, because I had the good fortune um, to somewhat be connected to China uh, throughout my life. Um, my mother is a sinologist and my um, parents were working in Beijing at the time. Uh, when I was a teenager, um, and it was a very different China that I encountered then. Um, Beijing was largely uh, very gray, mostly hutongs, um, not uh, as, you know, the developed super city that you see today. Um, the amount of product was limited, and, and China's economy uh, was just getting really kick-started. Um, and so it's been uh, just really amazing to be able to travel there, to work there, um, over the past decades and see the country change in, in so many different ways um, from the kind of um, emerging China of the uh, opening and reform era to the superpower it is today. Do you remember the moment when you decided to become a China scholar? Um, it's really hard to pinpoint. I think um, part of it was kind of driven by my existing interest in, in China and how it changes, also due to my personal biography and just seeing China change over time. Um, I was always really interested in political and social issues. Um, and when I went to China to both work and study, um, I did what many others uh, working in the field did, uh, work in different jobs and then ended up um, in a researcher position in Beijing and, and started to really focus on, on some of the topics that still um, are part of my core research areas today, um, especially when it comes to China's civil society, legal development, human rights. Um, so this kind of evolved over time. Um, the more I read, the more specialized I became. And, and I guess at some point I discovered that um, I was now a China scholar. My first question uh, regarding our uh, topic uh, of today, which is the 20th Party Congress, will be if you can tell us uh, how has the country transformed since the last Party Congress in 2017 and especially in the past two years? Um, to answer that question, I would first like to step even kind of one party Congress back um, to 2012, which, which brought Xi Jinping to power, really. Um, so th since then, um, he has been quite busy in consolidating his power first um, through um, internal campaigns, anti-corruption campaigns to um, to essentially um, clean out um, the ranks of the party and um, establish his uh, kind of loyalists within the system. Um, but he also was uh, very busy um, in terms of uh, policy changes in bringing the party back into the state. So in re-establishing 
um, the Chinese Communist Party's power within the political system and its kind of reach into society. Um, and, and this kind of brings us to 2017, um, which really laid the groundwork for the constitutional changes that we saw at the state level um, the year after, in early 2018, which uh, made the crucial change to the Chinese constitution that would allow Xi Jinping to stay on not just as party leader, um, what we're expecting to see this autumn, but also as China's president. Can you tell us briefly... Uh so what is China's Communist Party Congress and what exactly happens there? Um, how the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee will be selected this year? Um, so uh, maybe first to give a picture of how big this affair is. Um, in this autumn, or on October 16th to be precise, um, over 2,000 delegates, around 2,300 from all regions of China, from all levels of um, kind of the party administration um, and, you know, from all walks of life to kind of also represent how diverse the party is, will congregate in Beijing. Um, so, so this is a huge affair. Um, but when we talk about the election um, of the new kind of leadership, um, especially when it comes to the Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee, but also the um, broader set um, of uh, the Central Committee members, um, it's better to imagine that as an affirmation of a selection process that has already concluded than a spontaneous election where the outcomes are open. Um, so just to give you a picture of, of kind of who is going to be um, decided on, uh, we have uh, the question of who's going to move up in the Central Committee, so the kind of broader circle of power, uh, which has about 200 members, um, then the big um, kind of important and even closer circle of powers is the Politburo with about 25 members or with 25 members currently and that has usually stayed very stable and then the um, a bit more um, you know uh, undecided question of how many people will actually be in the next standing committee of the Politburo so the really core center of party power, um, except for uh, the party general secretary, of course. Um, and that's usually five to nine people. Um, but how many people exactly is um, a key political question, because it means um, it, it tells us a lot about, you know, who um, kind of made it into the inner circle, um, who um, both or different fractions of the party could agree on. Um, or how much it needed to be expanded or mm. um, limited to create somewhat of a balance and consensus. Um, so, again, much less of a, this is how many slots we have open and now we elect, but uh, what can we agree with pre-selection process where the names are then shared and officially um, kind of, you know, agreed upon through a formalized election process. <laughs> Party Congress is now said to be a major event uh, for China's politics, as you mentioned. She's uh, most probably heading towards securing another uh, five years as paramount leader. But what are the unknown outcomes of the Congress uh, that we could expect? What, what, what to watch out for? What is really at stake here at this Congress? Um, I mean, the biggest question um, around every Party Congress is personnel. Personnel, personnel, personnel. Um, who gets what position, what does that mean? Um, and the key points that everybody is watching out for here is really what that says about different fractions within the Chinese Communist Party. 
the Chinese Communist Party from the outside is often perceived as this very um, coherent uh, super system, so to say. But of course, um, within the party are, are very different interest fractions, also when it comes to decisions about China's future and mm. China's policymaking. Um, so what everybody's looking out for really is how strong will Xi Jinping's um, fraction and um, kind of trusted uh, aides be uh, in the new setup of the different um, organs uh, from the Politburo and its um, central uh, and its standing committee um, to the uh, central committee, so kind of the bigger um, center of power or circle of power hmm. uh, around the top leadership. And then the really big question is uh, who and how many people will be um, at the very center of uh, China's Communist Party's power structure, uh, which is the standing committee of the Politburo. Uh, that brings me to my next question, actually. Uh, so because there is this party's informal rule, uh, the seven up and eight down rule, that requires senior officials who are 68 or older to step down, Uh, which means that at least two of the seven member of the members of the Politburo Standing Committee and half of the Politburo will probably retire. Um, we are going to see the biggest personal reshuffle in a decade. Uh, what will the selection of the new Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee indicate in terms of China's new policy direction? I mean, first of all, um, when it comes to rules, um, as you already said, it's informal rules that um, really... Uh, govern or steer the um, election or better selection process um, because many of the rules that were kind of established over the past decades um, have been broken at times um, and and maybe continue to be broken again so it's uh, to some extent um, also interesting to watch to which extent these informal rules will be held up this time um, but if we assume um, that the retirement age will really be Um, uh, a fairly stable uh, benchmark that will be applied this time as well. Uh, you're correct. Um, it's going to be um, a big shift um, in terms of the leadership generation. And um, I mean, they're fantastic projects, um, for example, like the decoding the party congress side from Asia Society, uh, where those interests can really dig into the details and the different scenarios and what that might mean in terms of representation of different um, interests and, and um, people around Xi Jinping when it comes to mm. uh, the next five years. Um, the key question is also not who gets into um, the inner circle, But what portfolios and what policy directions do they represent? Um, so, for example, um, how strong um, in the party nomenclatura, so really the ranking of different positions and, and their kind of power level, um, what does that mean, for example, uh, when it comes to the importance of domestic security, when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to economic reform? Who will be the people steering that? Do they represent um, the somewhat more liberal or at least in market terms, liberal um, parts of the Chinese Communist Party, or will it be really core ideologues that are very closely aligned with Xi Jinping? So this is really uh, what we're watching out for. So what is the selection criteria for a member of a Politburo, standing committee uh, of the Politburo? Uh, who is the, what is the ideal type of this kind of candidate? Um, that, again, is a bit difficult to say, but um, if you look at biographies of uh, the different cadres that have made it to the top, um, there are some uh, defining features. So first of all, there are different 
um, kind of power bases from which to start your political career um, within the system. Um, not just two, but just to name the two main ones. Um, there's a strong network still of um, what was uh, called in the past the princelings, so the sons and daughters or family members of previous um, Communist Party leaders who maybe um, had a bit of a leg up in their career. I mean, Xi Jinping um, is famously um, the son of one of the kind of founding fathers um, and, and uh, leading figures of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and that's quite different, for example, compared to the people who've made their way up um, through the party's ranks from the ground, especially through the Chinese um, Communist Youth League. Um, so um, different ways to kind of get into the system. And this, to some extent, also explains um, the different and competing power networks um, that are mostly aligned um, in their interest to keep the party in power. Um, so despite all the differences, uh, there's quite a lot in common. And then um, if you look at their biographies and backgrounds, what many have, um, and that's also part of, of, of the system for cadres, right? Um, they're sent to different provinces, sent to different places. Um, they have to deal with different portfolios as they make their way to the top. That can be economic reform, financial. It can be um, different straight, uh, state administrations um, from religion to kind of social issues, um, plus uh, city or provincial leaderships, um, and slowly they make their way to the top. What's really important to watch out for um, is also what previous positions they have held in um, Chinese Communist Party uh, gremiums, such as the um, party committees. Um, so especially um, under Xi Jinping, uh, leading small groups and commissions have become a really important tool of power. Um, Essentially, those are super organs um, directly under the party leadership uh, where decisions are made that are then um, to some extent passed on to state organs and implemented. So this is really a way for Xi Jinping and the top leadership um, to kind of steer. And the, um, the people that have held either um, leading or kind of deputy positions in these key party organs um, are definitely on the top of everybody's list. So when we try and understand how, um, you know, future leaders are selected or what good criteria are for moving up the career ladder within the Chinese Communist Party, maybe it also helps to look at an individual example and how varied their backgrounds often are. Um, take, for example, Ma Xingrui, um, now aged 62, um, so uh, kind of at a good age to stay um, in the next kind of power circle for quite a while. And, uh, you know, he started with, um, with a bachelor in engineering mechanics, uh, came more from a technical background, um, joined the Chinese Communist Party um, in the late 1980s, um, worked um, at a university first, uh, was vice president of the Harbin Institute for Technology, for example, um, and then kind of moved through different, more um, technology-focused administrations. Um, for example, in the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, um, Corporation, um, and then onwards towards Vice Minister of Industry and Information Technology. So, if you look at this track record, it's it's really quite you know technology focused and in line with his background. But then you see the switch to. Um, more administrative leadership roles, um, such as party secretary of Shenzhen. So also like a very technologically leaning um, powerhouse, mm -hmm. um, governor of Guangdong, um, 
And then in 2021, um, a bit of a shift uh, towards, um, you know, more um, security-focused work as the new um, party secretary of Xinjiang. Um, so in a position where he has to continue policies implemented by his predecessor uh, or predecessors in terms of securing the region, um, kind of dealing with the uh, legacy of very restrictive minority policies and uh, trying to bring economic growth to the region at the same time. So a mix between, you know, really kind of more academic-leaning um, state administrations, party um, positions, and then kind of leadership positions in regions um, that, you know, the... Uh, party um, kind of core places a very high priority in keeping them um, stable, safe and um, integrated and um, kind of having to show his chops there. You know, being the party secretary of Xinjiang is not necessarily the safe bet for your career, is it? I mean, it can easily be something that will elevate you, that will bring you to uh, light, to spotlight. But at the same time, um It can be a trap or um, a dead end, maybe, perhaps, because, I mean, Xinjiang attracts so much attention and there is a lot of pressure on the party secretary to make the right decisions, right? Um, yeah, so, I mean, for example, if you talk about uh, positions such as um, being a party secretary of Xinjiang, a lot of the key positions that will, um, you know, that can become um, kind of a jumping point um, into the kind of top level of power are risky positions um, at the end of the day. Um, you're sent there to do the job. If you do it well, you get promoted. If you don't, you might fall. Um, an interesting case here also to watch um, this autumn really is um, which position Li Qiang, um, the, um, the party secretary of Shanghai um, from 2017 on will go. Because he was, again, um, quite diverse background um, with a base in the uh, Communist Youth League, um, lots of experience in local government, um, and then uh, party secretary of kind of the um, pulsing heart of um, kind of China's <laughs> economy, to some extent Shanghai, Um, and he was really primed to move in, into the center, but with um, the COVID outbreak, the way that Shanghai initially dealt with it, this has really right. been kind of thrown into question mm. just very shortly before the party congress. Um, so I think we often think of, um, you know, this leadership game as something that's decided maybe a year in advance, but it's also important to keep in mind that even kind of on, on the last 10 meters, um, mm. there are stumbling blocks. Speaking about the prolonged COVID outbreaks and medialization of China's repression in Xinjiang, can you tell me more about the issues that the Chinese Communist Party is facing domestically and internationally as it enters the next five years under Xi's leadership? Um, yeah, this is definitely um, a difficult um, and also interesting time uh, to watch because um, When you look at the party congress and Xi Jinping's continued hold on power, a lot seems fairly certain. But if you look what the party has to deal with um, right now and over the next five years, um, it becomes a lot less so. Um, right now, and uh, this is certainly something that um, the leadership did not hope for, um, you have 
um, a really strong impact of the zero COVID policy within China. People are unhappy um, about lockdowns. Um, there's really, to some extent, also a disillusionment uh, with how they're ruled by their um, party, which was you know, meant to protect citizens. Um, and let alone the economic impact uh, with small companies, uh, especially, um, you know, uh, being uh, crushed by the weight of, of zero COVID policies. Um, and this, to some extent, uh, calls into question the party's legitimacy. Mm. Um, just a year after Xi Jinping has proclaimed um, the China's victory over extreme poverty, mm. um, you have a moment when actually people um, through... Um, both uh, zero COVID, um, but also the uh, kind of natural catastrophes and climate-related mm. um, crises this summer uh, with droughts and energy shortages, you really have the strong impact on people's lives um, that needs urgent attention from the top leadership. Um, then you have, especially over the past five years, um, this alienation from Western countries driven forward both by Xi Jinping's um, policies, um, such as you know, dual circulation, refocusing on China, trying to become um, more independent, but also policies um, driven forward under him, or at least um, accepted under him, uh, for example, when it comes to Xinjiang and minority policies, which really has led um, to quite a lot of friction uh, with, with Western countries. Um, this is... Uh, yeah, this is increased. This friction is increased um, by China's stance um, on Russia's invasion of Ukraine mm, and this um, strong alignment and the narrative aid that China has provided, which again has increased friction to some extent um, beyond the kind of traditional China and West um, divide, um, which means that uh, there are both domestically and internationally um, kind of multiple issues that the leadership needs to tackle. Um, and this is where the party stands at this at this key event. If the COVID restrictions will continue uh, and we will see these endless lockdowns, do you think at some point the pot will boil over and we will see some uh, form of political unrest we haven't been used to in uh, in China? Yeah, this is also um, a key issue that or a key factor of uncertainty really going forward. Um, in the coming months, because, um, I mean, another key project um, that he drove forward, um, inherited from his predecessors, but really drove forward, is build-up of the surveillance state of stronger online monitoring of guiding public opinion through, you know, promotion of certain content, uh, spreading positive energy and deleting um, certain uh, criticism, for example, um, and, and outsourcing that really to the big platform companies. So, um, you know, the party under he is in a place where they do have quite a bit of control and invest really significant resources into being able to, you know, see where protests are brewing, where maybe unrest is brewing and where discontent is brewing and put a lid on it. But what happens if there is so much brewing across the country that they can't keep up with putting the lid on things? Mm -hmm. And this is really the question when we look at the current situation with lockdowns. Either they put the lid on COVID and, and outbreaks harshly um, that might actually lead to really significant distrust in the party, in local leaders and in protests breaking out, um, maybe even concerns over or voiced concerns, publicly voiced concerns, over bigger systemic issues with the Chinese Communist Party ruling the country, um, or they are successful in um, 
using all the different powers um, and, you know, the significant online censorship, um, public security, state security resources, and so on, um, to keep this in control. But that can also lead to a longer term, um, you know, distrust and legitimacy crisis when it comes to Communist Party. So um, COVID-19 and really Omicron um, has been quite a bit of a wild card in the run-up to the Party Congress and what that means for the next five years. And um, especially if you look at the longer term impacts of loss of income, of unemployment, mm. especially youth unemployment, and what that means for mm. a generation that has grown up in not the kind of, you know, uh, relatively undeveloped, gray and poor uh, China that, you know, the over 40s and 50s have experienced with being sent to the countryside and experiencing hunger. They've mostly been, you know, the young urbanites uh, with maybe not global internet connection, but like a vibrant, um, you know, ch online commerce and, and discussion sphere um, within limits. And uh, they have not experienced that hardship. They were told China has risen. We're at a point where, um, you know, we're one of the top countries. So how do they deal with this new situation? And what does that mean? for the future of the relationship between the party and its people. Yes, we now have this break where this might be probably the first generation that uh, might not be better off than their parents, or at least they will not see a significant improvement of their um, life situation within their lives, right? Yes, to some extent, um, that is certainly true. Um, and it's not a slow turn down either that you can adjust to mentally. It's quite a harsh switch in, you know, opportunities, growth, and this projection of the future will be better. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, being locked at home and having to worry about food because it's all controlled or the, the state as possible. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, it's been a very big shift for them from, you know, being told that the future is bright um, and that they and China are going places, to put mm -hmm. it um, a bit more um, bluntly, um, and now having to deal with the fact that they are locked in, that um, food, work, um, a stable income, the ability to pay back your mortgage is really reliant on the state um, to a very large extent. And um, maybe one last thing to mention here is that China's social security system is not as, as stable um, as maybe would be needed in this current situation. So um, another kind of task on the long list uh, for the party, um, not just at the Congress, but after, is really to consider how to deal with inequality in the country and um, kind of work on longer-term structural issues instead of just um, leveraging the coercive power they have. There is no doubt that there are many challenges lying ahead for the Chinese Communist Party. But let's talk about the situation within the party. The anti-corruption campaign has become a hallmark of Xi Jinping's rule. I'm curious to know how has the campaign and institutionalization of party organizations such as Central Committee for Discipline Inspection affected elite politics and political culture in the country? Um, especially when it comes to, you know, the anti-corruption campaign and the role of the Central Committee for Discipline Inspection, so the CCDI, 
Um, it's, I think, super helpful to look back um, even before kind of Xi Jinping's taking power, um, because while previous leaders also used anti-corruption campaigns to, you know, kind of clear the ranks and bringing their trusted aides, um, it was um, what, what Xi Jinping did just went beyond previous scales in terms of how many um, he targeted, and also uh, in the way that it was a very top-down affair, instead of continuing previous efforts that actually happened in, in trial projects around the country, um, even under the Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao years, um, that to try to, um, you know, combat corruption with transparency. So um, it really made clear that this is about personal power and not just, um, mm. you know, uh, addressing citizens' concerns about uh, corruption. And um, this kind of use of anti-corruption as expansion of power um, is also reflected in the 2018 constitutional changes, which um, established the National Supervision Commission um, that was kind of integrated or is now integrated with the CCDI. So again, kind of this fusion of party state and turn away from the separation of party and state um, that we saw in the uh, Deng Xiaoping years and, and, and mm. afterwards. Um, and this has expanded kind of this um, anti-corruption disciplinary power um, over all state employees. So it's definitely an expansion of control. Um, beyond the instrumentalization mm. of this campaign, can we say there are really tangible achievements? Uh, can we can we really say that uh, today China is uh, less corrupt than it was before Xi Jinping came to power? I mean, that's always difficult to measure. Um, so with that caveat, um, uh, quite a few things have changed, especially on the visible level. And that was also a key goal of this campaign when it comes to the image of the party and how it is um, viewed by, by citizens. Um, because, you know, Lavish banquets were a key point of public um, discussion, of online debates, of pictures being shared, of um, scandals erupting around individual um, cadres um, just as Xi Jinping took power. And he's really addressed that with long sets of rules on, you know, banquets internally, on traveling abroad, on uh, what cars to be used. So the uh, famous um, kind of eight uh, rules of Baxian Guizhe um, at the very early um, years of, of, of his um uh, taking on power over China. And um, uh, that has gone along with, with changes also in the state administration when it comes to, um, you know, how to file for certain uh, procedures or permits. Um, there definitely has been, um, you know, also through digitalization and so on, there have been efforts to make kind of the daily um, corruption and kind of greasing the wheel much less prominent uh, within Chinese society. Now, this is not to say that, you know, buying uh, positions and seats and uh, many things that um, kind of uh, counterpoint um, the myth of meritocracy in the Chinese Communist Party, <laughs> they might still be present. Um, and, you know, just looking at recent weeks and, and um, new revelations of corruption, even in high positions, um, this is both a continued issue and both a continued tool of political control. Should we expect an easing of China's zero-COVID policy once Xi secures his third term, or um, will the COVID restrictions continue um, into the 2023? I mean, China's very strict zero-COVID policy um, are definitely connected to the importance of the party congress this autumn. So it's, um, you know, the level of um, 
attention and overzealousness of local officials in, you know, locking people in, um, you know, sending people outside of the city to kind of make their quotas um, before this important political event that actually led to people, uh, 27 people dying on a bus, um, which is, you know, making waves in, in China's um, online uh, sphere mm. right now. These kind of overreactions um, to the risks um, that are definitely there through transmission of the virus um, are partially connected to this political event. But um, we should not expect uh, China's zero COVID policy to ease right after, because after all, um, the risks by the coronavirus are not banned from China. Um, you did have initial vaccination campaigns and so on, but the um, effectiveness of vaccines is lower, as we know. Then the um, vaccination rate within China is still fairly low. Uh, many of the vaccinations are um, quite old, so not as effective anymore. So any easing restrictions would lead um, to a fairly quick spread um, of the virus. And compared to other countries, um, China is just not prepared for that. Mm. To some extent, um, they were so convinced in their own systemic superiority and their ability at keeping the virus at bay that they didn't really use the window of opportunity they had after uh, initially containing the virus with very harsh measures um, that already uh, didn't really um, trigger much uh, support in the population. Um, so this too is kind of um, a very crucial thing to watch. They can't really uh, lose restrictions, but if they continue um, with these very harsh um, treatment and kind of invasions into people's mm. lives and their abilities to make a living and make an income, um, what new risk does that pose for the Chinese Communist Party? So mm. um, again, at this political crossroads, so there's also a big kind of social policy crossroads. This leads some experts to say that China's 40 years of open-door policy is coming to an end. Uh, Others are pointing to the planned visits of the two Western leaders, Macron and Scholz, which, according to them, signal that China is reopening to the world again. So which one is it, do you think? Um, I think China's relation with the world is quite well encapsulated in Xi Jinping's concept of dual circulation. Um, I mean, this is kind of the um, policy term for Xi Jinping's new um, economic policy, but It's really at its core about maximizing profit from international engagement or benefits from international engagement, but also to be ready to go it alone, to be independent, to be um, a leader across, you know, technology, um, economy and, and other fields um, and be able to um, kind of decouple uh, when it is politically seen as necessary. So... Um, What we can expect, I think, going forward is a continuation of what we already see. So there will mm -hmm. be openness and openness to invest in China, to engage with China, as long as it's on the conditions um, set by the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Now this comes, for example, um, this becomes um, apparent when we look at how different countries treat Taiwan or engagement with Taiwan, um, different countries um, or the European Union stances, for example, on human rights violations in Xinjiang and other um, political issues seen as uh, both sensitive and kind of a core issue um, for the Chinese Communist Party to make um, their position known. So 
what we can expect China to do. And we are already seeing that, for example, with the recent um, S, uh, Shanghai Cooperation mm -hmm. Organization Summit, where um, Xi Jinping kind of left uh, the safe haven, the COVID safe haven of China to travel abroad ahead of the party congress, which mm -hmm. is really quite significant, to engage with um, leaders from non-Western countries to build new alliances, partnerships, to rally support behind China, to secure its, for example, energy and resource interests. So, yes, reaching out to the world and being engaged, but not necessarily um, towards Western nations, uh, quite the opposite. It's, it's kind of, um, you know, uh, diversification mm -hmm. in terms of partners. Um, and this goes along with, uh, you know, if you look at both Xi Jinping's books and speeches and policy documents and that of other leaders, there's this strong theme, especially over the past 10 years of, um, you know, feeling um, encircled and threatened by the West, um, you know, subversion of China through color revolutions and uh, dangerous liberal ideas um, and this kind of strong anti-Western subtones obviously will also drive how um, the incoming uh, top leadership will deal with the West. Um, I don't think we can expect a big turn away from that, even with Macron and Scholz um, mm. traveling to China. So it is a partial reopening, or maybe it's best described as a conditional openness. Mm -hmm. Where do you see China and the Communist Party at the next party congress in five years? I mean, this is a really difficult question to answer. So it's like the, uh, you know, political fishbowl mm -hmm. um, that we're kind of trying to gaze into and to um, see what kind of distorts our vision and what will be there. Um, as we discussed before, I mean, there are definitely really rocky times ahead, um, both in, in terms of China's um, economic development with, you know, financial strains right now with... Um, impacts on incomes, uh, longer-term kind of structural issues, um, but also shifting relations um, internationally and kind of um, this geopolitical um, drifting apart. Um, so it's quite hard to say where we'll end up, um, which is also the reason why I want to pivot to maybe trying to answer what I think will remain constant and what we can mm -hmm. expect on the way there. Um, because, you know, looking at Xi Jinping's legacy over the past 10 years, um, what he's definitely been successful at doing is establishing his thought and ideology. And this is also what we can expect from the party congress, um, a further consolidation of that, you know, in the party constitution, in policy documents and so on. And um, kind of Xi Jinping's, you know, broader vision or, you know, policy project um, also has brought with it a codification of some of Xi Jinping's key um, principles and terms in laws and regulation. So as opposed to, for example, Mao and other previous leaders, the system Xi is much more institutionalized. Um, this comes, for example, really apparent when you look at the integration of party and state, um, for example, with the National Supervision Commission, which was... Um, encoded in China's constitution, right? So many of the things that Xi Jinping has changed institutionally and so on and ideologically aren't easy to roll back, even if there is a partial rethinking, because they are made law and regulation in principle, mm. um, kind of black on white, so to say. 
Um, and another key um, theme to watch um, that will certainly continue is um, domestic securitization mm. or securitization of China's domestic and international policies. Um, I'm thinking here especially of Xi Jinping's concept of comprehensive national security and really um, trying to tackle and preempt any and all threats to the regime, um, which kind of put China and its leadership in, in a very defensive mode. Um, now, this has already started under previous leaders, but also a broader tent that will likely continue into the next five years, which also means um, there's kind of a troubled road ahead, um, also in our relationship with China. Before we say goodbye, I have one final question for you. Um, what is your advice for young China scholars? Um, I guess my advice would be to to realize that you often already know much more than you think. Um, you tend to uh, look at you know people's names on publications um, and think, wow. Um, These scholars know so much more than I'll never know. Um, and then at some point you realize, well, I've already collected quite a bit of knowledge. I've specialized in things. Um, I have something to offer. And um, kind of that's where my uh, tip for, for aspiring scholars, and especially those that are more interested in working in the public domain comes in, which is try and write. Um, you know, send out pitches, um, do short uh, contributions for... Um, for not just journals, but blogs, try easy, practice writing, because the main thing is that people want to know what you know. So work on how to communicate that. And I think actually, um, you know, choice um, also offers really good opportunities there. So would encourage especially the listeners to um, make use of that opportunity. On that note, if you are a young professional or a student from Europe, interested in China or China's relations with Europe, You can submit your latest work to Choice as part of our Future Choice initiative. For more information, check our website www.chinaobservers.eu. This was Voice for Choice. If you would like to know more about our work, please do visit our website at chinaobservers.eu. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. We hope you'll make the right choice and tune in for the next episode of Voice for Choice.